Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, let me apologize for not putting a podcast out. <laughs> let me, I'm going to tell you what has been the delay, and you might understand it has nothing to do with sailing, but uh, the other podcast I do is called the Series 7 Podcast, and that's pretty much where I make most of my money that I get from podcasts. I get very, very little money from Sailing in the Mediterranean podcast. I have a few patrons, and I need more, by the way. My bread is buttered in the uh, Series 7 podcast. Well, on October 1st, uh, the, the FINRA, which runs a Series 7 exam, and the Series 7 exam is a, an exam for the securities industry professionals, those that wish to sell investment products such as stocks and bonds or stockbrokers, are required to pass the Series 7 exam. Well, on October 1st, 2018, that exam was changed drastically. And they put a new exam in, in place, which is called the Securities Industries Essentials Exam, which is now a prerequisite before you're allowed to sit for the Series 7 exam. Now, there's two advantages to that. To sit for the Series 7 exam previously, you had to actually be employed by uh, somebody that was regulated by FINRA. Uh, in other words, you had to have a job with a brokerage firm before you could even sit for the Series 7 exam. And then when you're working for the firm, they have you prepare for and take the exam. And once you pass the exam, then you can actually generate income for the firm. In other words, generate commissions by selling and selling stocks and bonds to clients or doing work for the company that entails meeting with the general public. But before, before you can interact with the general public in the financial services industry, you have to have passed uh, one of many exams, but the most common exam is the Series 7 exam. Well, now the new prerequisite to the Series 7 exam is called the Securities Industries Essentials Exam. And the advantage of this new exam is it allows anybody at the age of 18 or over to take the exam. You don't have to be employed by a broker-dealer or a member of FINRA to take the exam. So anybody can take the exam. And the advantage of that is if you want to work in the financial services industry, you can prepare yourself ahead of time. And so if you go to a firm and you say, hey, listen, I've already passed the securities industry's essentials exam, they might give you a leg up over the competition. Well, they did two things. Number one, they diminished the number of questions on the Series 7 exam and basically took all of the material that was previously on the Series 7 exam and put it into the Securities Industries Essentials exam. So I'm having to go through, I've got 58 lessons for the Series 7 exam, and most of those lessons will now become part of the Securities Industries Essentials exam. So I'm having to go through 24 hours of audio lessons and re-edit all of those lessons to apply to the Securities Industries Essentials exam. And that's a lot of work, and that's what I've been working on instead of putting out the Sailing in the Mediterranean podcast. A few weeks ago, I had the great opportunity of talking to my good friends, Neil Fletcher and Jack Andrews, and we did a you know, couple interviews, and I just haven't had the time to edit them, but I'm going to be putting them out. Well, I'm going to be putting one of those interviews out in this podcast here. But I did get a couple questions, and I need to thank my sponsor, Sailrite, before we get on to that. This show is sponsored in part by Sailrite. Since 1969, Sailrite has been equipping self-sufficient sailors with tools, supplies, and knowledge they need to sew for their boats. This second-generation family business is also the maker of the Sailrite Ultrafeed sewing machine. The Ultrafeed is a portable, heavy-duty sewing machine that was designed to handle all your maritime sewing projects from sails to covers. At Sailrite, you'll find everything you need to take on your next do-it-yourself project, including fabric, tools, hardware, 
and even hundreds of free how-to video tutorials. Start your next project at sailrite.com. That's S-A-I-L-R-I-T-E dot com. I only have a couple questions, but let's get on to them. Get ready for today's mailbag. I like getting emails from my friends out there, so if you have any thoughts, comments, suggestions, or questions, write me franz1 at medsailor.com or use the contact form at the website. Now for today's emails. Well, here's a quick question. One I got from Hussein. He said, hey, Franz, I hope all is well. I have a podcast question. Have you ever seen or heard of anybody see a shark while sailing in the Mediterranean or the Aegean Sea? Take care, Hussein. No, Hussein, no. I've been looking for sharks every, ever since I got to the Mediterranean. But no, I have never, ever seen any sharks. I've seen lots of dolphins. I've seen turtles. I've seen lots of little fish when I'm snorkeling around, but I very, I really have never seen any sharks. I have seen sharks in the Caribbean when I've been scuba diving, and I've seen sharks. The most concentration of sharks I've ever seen when I've been sailing was just off the coast of Santa Barbara, and there were a lot of hammerhead sharks, you know, swimming around one day as we came into port. I've never seen them as predominant as I did see in them on that day. But no, I've never seen any sharks in the Mediterranean at all, and I would love to see a fish that big when I'm sailing around. Now, I have read in the Turkish pilot that there is an area in Turkey where there are sharks. And let me open up Google Earth and give you an idea. And this is from the pilot. And I've I've never been to this area, but I've, but that's what he said. He said there were some sharks in this area, which in my opinion would be a reason to go sail there just to see if there really are sharks. So in the pilot, and I'm just going by memory because I remember when I read this that I thought, wow, that's, that's interesting. But it was basically the big bay that's just south of Bodrum. It goes, turns and goes east way in there. And I think this is called Gakova Bay. And I've never sailed all the way up to the end of that bay, but I have sailed into the bay as far as Kukertime, and that's spelled C-O-K-E-R-T-M-E. But I, I didn't see any sharks when I went in there. But apparently, way up at the end of that bay on the south shore, he said there were sharks there, but I have not verified that. So no, I have not seen any sharks anywhere in the Mediterranean. Got another email from Karen. Karen wrote, in 2020, we are going to be starting a similar adventures to yours, sailing in the Mediterranean, but for seven months, April to November, and back to the US November to March. And we're looking at boats and have found our dream boat, but it's a 48 foot catamaran. We know the Med is not ideal for catamarans because of Med mooring, and it may be difficult to find a yard that can haul it out. But beyond that, would we be able to get into most ports with a catamaran that size? And I guess it's a Kinsa 480, K-N-Y-S-N-A 480. I'm not particularly familiar with that boat. But I know everybody wants to take the, uh, the microwave and the washer and dryer and all the creature comforts at home when they go on a sailing adventure in the Mediterranean. And that's why they go for the big catamarans because of all the big space. Well, I understand what you want. You want to take basically your home with you when you do your adventure. Um, I have a, I've seen more and more and more catamarans in the Mediterranean. It seemed like that's all I seemed to run across from the charter fleet last year in Croatia. Yeah, you can probably get your boat in there, but the if, if everybody goes with a catamaran that big, there's not going to be much port space anywhere for anybody except for four or five catamarans. 
And that's my big complaint with catamarans is they just fill up the marina with these big boxes that basically take the space of three boats. And, um, yeah, you'll be able to get in there as long as you get up early in the morning, go to the port you're going to and get in there before everybody else comes in and take the spot. But, uh, you'll have to get up early in the morning and get to your next port very quickly before they start filling up because there's only so much space in those ports. There's only so much space. So if you are willing to do that and occasionally not find a spot and go out and find a place to anchor or spend the night at sea, then, then go with a catamaran. It seems like everybody wants to be in a big boat these days. And they want the creature comforts of a big boat. A lot of women don't like um, the healing of a monohull. But, you know, to each his own. So that's my answer. Yeah, you might be able to get into... It really just depends on what port you're going into. Uh, All the ports are getting absolutely crowded now. There's been such an expansion of the charter fleets that... uh, even monohulls have a hard time finding spots anymore. So, best of luck to you. Tell it, and when you when you get there, give me a call and let's do some interviews about your experiences because I'm sure a lot of other people out there want to buy catamarans and would be benefiting from what you found out. That's it for today's emails. If you have any thoughts suggestions or comments or questions write me franz1 at medsailor.com or use the contact form at the website if you want to do me a big favor you could become a patreon of the podcast i have a few listeners out there that are already patrons and i'm looking for more if you have some spare change that you could throw my way once in a while please sign up at patreon.com backslash medsailor and one more thing if you like the podcast I would really appreciate it if you could take the time to write a review of the podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast directory. All right, let's get on to today's episode. I just want to reach out and thank Bellaman for the review in iTunes. He said, so I did get a review, and I want to thank this person. Bella Man wrote, Franz, thanks so much for the rewind from Dreamer to Sale. Said, Franz, thanks so much for the rewind of the episode from Dreamer to Sailor. I recall hearing it the first time you published it, and I was inspired. I never think of re-listening to podcasts, so the rewind was great. Turns out we are the same age and have both turned dreams into sailing adventures. Thanks so much for the many years of great sailing stories, Bella. Hey, Bella, if you have a chance, drop me another email, franz1 at medsailor.com, and let me do an interview with you. If you have some stories of your own to share, I'd like to talk to you about it. All right, let's get on to the interview that I did with Jack and Neil. I am on the line today with Jack Andrews and Neil Fletcher. This is the first time we've had a chance to talk all three of us together for quite a while, so I thought it'd be fun. We're, we're on Skype. Jack is in Marina Ragusa in Sicily, and Neil is in, um, in California in... Santa Monica. So, Neil, all right, I'm going to start with Neil. Neil, bring us up to date on what your summer sailing adventures were like, really, you know, as, as long as you want to go on. Okay. Well, it was, um, it was a lovely summer. Um, transportive and transformative. Uh, it was better than it was in 2016, which was the first time that I sailed an Arcturus in Scandinavia. Um, and we revisited many of the same haunts that I went to before, just because I enjoyed them so much and I had made friends. But uh, we also went further afield. I had a session of guests over the summer. Um, I arrived in Sweden on June 18th, and I don't think I left until August 14th. So I was almost there for two months, about nine weeks. Um, And uh, we went a little further afield at the beginning over to the Orland Islands. There's a big archipelago there, and that's off the coast of Finland. So I experienced more of the wild side of Scandinavian sailing because it's, um, it's similar in some ways, but it's a lot wilder than it is over on the Swedish side. 
And um, I guess during the course of that time, I probably went to about 30 different places. Um, as I said, some of which I'd been before and some which were new. And then I finally put the boat up um, in the second week of August in a place called Oregrund, which it had been, she'd been there before when she was previously owned by Andy and Mia, to a place called Greppen Marine. So she's up there now. She's been put away. And um, I'm going to have some work done her, on her in the springtime for next year. But um, I'm already planning um, next year's trip. Um, and I'm going to do a lot more Finland next time because it's really whetted my appetite to, to sailing over there. Well, when we were together, we met a bunch of Finnish sailors, and they seemed to like to come over to Stockholm quite a bit. But, yeah, I'm looking at the uh, archipelago in Finland, and there's, there's probably more islands there than there are around the Swedish archipelago, the Stockholm archipelago. Yes, yeah. yeah, so the, the exact number slips my my memory but i remember sort of being stunned that it was sort of like three times the size or two times the size and the amount of um the the, the amount that they are so close together in 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 places it's a, even harder and more challenging than it is in the stockholm archipelago very often you can go a whole day without being able to um turn your engine off because you're going through these narrow channels and you don't want to get backwinded and and and, and hauled up on some you know on a, on a on a reef because there's an awful lot of areas where you've got two feet of clearance or three feet of clearance and you're going down a channel that's only 30 meters wide clearly you're not going to be sailing down that unless you're in an opti <laughs> um so it's a little more challenging in that regard, but it's very rewarding in terms of the fact that it's absolutely beautiful. It's a lot starker. Um, and the Finnish marinas that I visited, uh, we did sort of about 60% of the time in marinas and about 40% of the time um, bows to on the granite rocks. But the Finnish marinas seemed um, a little less well-equipped than their Swedish cut counterparts. But they always had the essentials, which was, of course, the Wi-Fi and the sauna. And the saunas there, the, the Finns always complain that the Swedish saunas aren't hot enough. And the Finnish saunas that I went in were absolutely roasting. And the, the nice thing was there was always room. So if you had a if you had a place that, if you had a marina that had a berth of 60 boats, there'd typically be three separate saunas just to make sure no one uh, went without, so to speak. So that was an interesting aspect to explore as well. Now, were there, was it easy to get fresh water? How hard was it to resupply in the islands, or, or what was the story um, there? Well, there the, the weren't a lot of little villages, but, you know, to be fair, during the eight weeks that I was in, uh, nine weeks that I was over there, I was only in Finland for about 10 days. Um, and as far as fresh water, that's no problem. I mean, it's, it's an awful lot of rain, an awful lot of fresh water, an awful lot of lakes. So fresh water was no problem. Um, you just felt that, but there, were, there weren't the sort of um, eco supermarkets that you'll see uh, over in Sweden as much. So it was, um, you had to make sure that you were stocked up before you went. And when you did find little places, there was always some food, but the, the choice was never particularly great, nor was the quality. Um, one of the nice things is that there was always artisanal things. So there was a place that we went to, one in particular on the island of Kokar, and they had artisanal. Um, Orland cheese and artisanal Orland milk from a special kind of cow that you, we didn't see that anywhere else. Um, and in that same store, they had hand-knitted woolen socks from one of the owner's grandmothers who she, she would knit over the winter and they'd sell them for 15, 15 euros a piece. So it's nice to have three pairs of Orland socks in my drawer at home in Santa Monica. So there's sort of that, that sort of very specific sense of, of place that you don't always get everywhere else. So that, that aspect of it was really nice, but it's just, you just have to be a little more self-sufficient and you have to be properly prepared. Otherwise you'll go hungry. So how many crews did you have and did you sail much alone? Um, I had a total of, let me see, one, two, three, four crews. I was expecting one more towards the end, but they cancelled on me. So I sailed a little bit more on my own than I would have liked. Um, but sometimes the solitude is nice too. It enables you to get your head together, to focus really just on yourself and on the boat. But I would say that the nine weeks that I was there, I probably had crew for about six, six and a half weeks. And the rest of the time, either to, towards the end, I had 10 days on my own. And I, the others was just three or four days here between crews arriving. So when did you go over and when did you return, Neil? So I, I, left on, um, I left on 
June 17th, um, and I was with um, another sailing um, friend of mine here who I just, in the interest of privacy, I'll just refer to as Jay. So he came with me and helped me launch the boat, and we headed out almost immediately over to Finland. So the boat was in the Lustero boatyard, which is about 20 miles, nautical miles northeast of Stockholm. Um, um, and so we spent a night en route to Finland in a place called um, Bledo, which is a lovely little guest harbor with a 19th century um, fishing boat, cargo boat rather, sort of permanently on display there moored. Um, nice restaurant looking out over the harbor. So we spent a night there and then we headed across the Baltic the next day. Uh, and that was just like glass. I was a little nervous until I saw the weather forecast, but it was just, it was like crossing a lake. So I was over in Finland with him for um, perhaps, yes, close to 10 days. And we went to four or five different islands there. Um, and then I came back to Stockholm and I spent uh, to, uh, the Stockholm archipelago. And then I spent the rest of the summer, as I said, revisiting some old haunts before slowly making my way uh, north. And I got off the boat on the 12th of August, and she was put up by the 14th, and that was when I headed home. Hey, so, Neil, I've got some questions for you on that one. Mm -hmm. um, so, can you one, well, I'll list them and see how you go. So, what's the size of the boat, just to remind us? Secondly, um, what does it cost you to, to keep it there um, as a yearly cost, even whether you use the boat or not? And, and thirdly, what did you have to do maintenance-wise and, and such like, and did you have to spend any money to get the boat ready and going again? Right. Well, the boat is a 1966 Allied Sea Breeze, um, sensor uh, shoulder draft with a lifting keel. So when the um, keel is up and it's a centerboard system, she only um, draws about three feet, so we can get really go sort of gunk-holing, as they say. Um and as far as the costs are concerned, the further away you get from Sweden, uh, Stockholm, rather, the cheaper it is. So at um, the Lustero boatyard, which is actually called Ramsmora Batvarv, but it's on the island of Lustero, that was where she's been since 2016. It's about 1,600, 1,600 before the year to keep her up. But that includes the lift and putting her back in the water. Um, so it's not terribly expensive, um, really, it's considering that Sweden is an expensive country. But the place that she's in now, because it's further away from Stockholm, is cheaper still. So I just got the invoice from them for lifting out of the water, for um, winterizing the tanks, the uh, winterizing the engine. And, and I'd done that myself before. And the bill for the whole year for storage outside and the lift and the winterization was a little over $1,000. So from that perspective, it's really very reasonable. Now, you can spend mm -hmm. more if you want to keep your boat in a, in a, inside under a shed. And there are some boatyards that have the option of inside the shed, um, but it's not heated or inside a heated shed. And the price goes up, I think, quite dramatically. I think if you want to be inside a heated shed, I think it's double what it is outside. Um, but there's no need for the boat to be heated, as far as, as far as I know. Um, in fact, I was astonished. Uh, the boat, did, the, the engines didn't have a trickle charger there, you know, but they have cold winters, so the batteries don't seem to uh, to, to uh, discharge. And once we put the boat in the water and we connected the electrical, the the engine started first time, which was just to me, I was absolutely astonished by that after two years away from the boat. Now that's without even but, charging them. Uh, that's without even charging them. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I had mentioned that to Andy before when I bought the boat from him. And so I'd mentioned that to Andy before. And he'd said that uh, he, because he'd 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 stored it, uh, her on the hard for a couple of seasons as well. And he it was the same thing. It, you know, he'd also redone the electrical system. He put in new batteries and a new engine. So that certainly helps. But nonetheless, it was a very, very pleasant surprise. Um, and then to answer your final question, Jack, which was about um maintenance i didn't really have to replace anything you know the boat was in wonderful condition in terms of the sails the lines the rigging um the electrical it was one of the many great things about that boat and one of the reasons that i first decided to buy her sight unseen back in 2015 but um this year she is having some work done i am having the um the head replaced 
with a with an airhead, a composting head, and I'd actually bought that head that cost me about a thousand dollars from the local supplier, and we had planned to put it in, but we had a problem with the um what the through holes, and we didn't want to mess with it when the boat was in the water. Um, and it was actually launched before I'd got the, the composting head on board. So we, we just kept that on board because the head, the existing head was working fine, but I'm going to have that um, installed while I'm away. I'm also having a new set of bow, pulpit, uh, bow pulpits uh, installed, and that's, that's a little bit of a longer discussion, which I'm happy to have. But um, when you're in the archipelago, uh, you either most of the boats there have an open pulpit at the front so it's easy to hop on and off for doing bows too but our tourist didn't have that because she's not a swedish boat she's an american boat so andy and mia had replaced uh, had taken off the pulpit at the front and at the back and um uh, it was not crazy about that at one time because i was coming across back across from finland in 35 knot winds and having and she doesn't have a um a roller furling. So hauling down a big jib and putting on a smaller one in 35 knot winds without a pulpit, it's just a little hairy. So I yeah. resolved. <laughs> I'll say. So, I, so I resolved to, and it, it also sort of contributed to me perhaps not making the decision. Instead of reefing earlier and changing sails earlier, sometimes you think, well, I'll just bring, you know, I can go jib and jigger and bring down the, um, the mainsail rather than going out into the foredeck. So you, but you don't want to have to f be forced into those kind of decisions. So I just resolved to have a new bow pulpit installed. Um, and I'm also having um, a, a windlass installed. It came with the boat, but it wasn't installed. So that's going to be done over the winter. And I don't know how much all of these are going to cost me yet. But um, I'd had some preliminary discussions with the boatyard. And based on what other work I'd seen, they seem to do good work at a very reasonable price. So... I can check back with you perhaps before my next excursion next year and let you know how much all of those things cost. Hmm. Thank you. So, Neil, why haven't you uh, replaced that uh, the, the jib with a roller furling? That was one of the first things I did when I started sailing <laughs> by myself. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, the, the first time I wanted to see how I would get by with that, um, and so that was back in 2016. And I looked at... Um, other things that were more, I don't say more important to me, um, because actually after my experience this time, I would say it's, that, that, that's, that's important to me too. But, you know, the bow pulpit and the head is important to me too. So I'm just going to, um, I'm going to see how I get along and I'll see how much spare cash I have left over in the springtime. And if I get along okay with the new pulpit there, um, then I'll probably put it off for another year. You know, in general, I'd rather not go out in 35 knot winds. And the nice thing about being up there is that the wind is constant, but it's pretty sheltered and the water is flat. That's what happens when you have 10,000 islands. Um, you know, there isn't really no noticeable swell. So the only time that I was in, you know, high winds um, was when I had to cross um, because it was going to when we had to cross uh, over from Finland because the winds were actually scheduled to get even higher and we had what we thought was a window but we just dallied we didn't really go as far we we, we were it's, it's that that's another story which I could go into but we were looking at the wind vane which I hadn't really used before and we were sort of dallying around for three or four hours just experimenting with it and tweaking it. And we just spent a little bit longer, perhaps, than we should have done. And we expected to be back across to the island of Feyan on the Swedish side just before the winds came up. And the winds just, we were about 10 miles off when the wind suddenly came up. Um, and so, it, again, that's one of those issues where if you had a rolling foot, roller furling, then you don't have to worry about going out onto the foredeck. But um, it, it's so, that's a long-winded answer, but it's definitely on the list. Maybe next spring, maybe the spring after. Yeah, yeah, it's one of those things that, uh, especially if you're doing much s solo sailing, it's nice to have. Now, on the windlass, I totally agree with you on, on putting a windlass in. I remember trying to pull up that anchor when I was with you, and I thought, Neil, get a damn electric windlass. So I'm glad <laughs> you're doing that. <laughs> so, and also on your electrical system, when I was on board, you had those Trojan golf cart, six-volt golf cart batteries, and I... I only have great things to say about those batteries. I had them on my boat for well over 10 years, and they were great until I finally had to sell. A, you know, I put them on initially when my boat was in, um, when I was building my boat in Salt Lake, and then I sailed for five years up in the Northwest, and then 
I finally had to replace those batteries when I eventually got to Turkey, like five er, five years after I started sailing in the Mediterranean. So those are great. Those are really, I think they're the best batteries made personally. And when I saw your system, your battery system set up, I thought, wow, I wish I could get those Trojan batteries over in Europe, but you, but you can't. So, yeah. Right. Okay. And so when you when you install that windlass, um, do you have to add batteries for it or what you've got is enough? It's it's a manual windlass, um, you know, and I, I can hear um, <coughs> Francis' intake of, of breath. <laughs> <laughs> so it's one step forward. That's right. It's one step forward. Uh, you know, um, again, it it really, it, I would just go back to when Andy bought the boat from um, Ben Weems, there actually was a roller furling on it. And Andy is a very, very much a purist. And he decided to take the roller furling off. And his father said to him, you know, Andy, well, well, I'm paraphrasing here, but you know, what's the matter with you? You're setting back sailing 30 years. Well, that's at least is the story that Andy's told on his podcast. Um, so the boat was very much, you know, purely about sailing with not too many extras. Um, and little by little, as I get older and I get more acquainted with the boat, I become aware of the things that I would like to change. But um, we're going we're gonna to go for a manual windlass, and I'm going to see how I get get on with it, and uh, we'll take it from there. Now, how often are you anchoring versus uh, tying up to shore? Because when you tie up to shore, you know, you're uh, I guess you're throwing the anchor off the back, aren't you? That's right. Yeah. No, I didn't use the bow anchor once this this year. Okay. Um, but you know, the one at the back is yeah. It, typically, you if you are going on what they call a nature ham, which is a nature harbour. You've got a choice of either dropping the hook off the front or going bows to on the granite. And I chose to do bow, go bows to on the granite. I like to do it. It's fun. And then you obviate the need for a dinghy to have to get to dry land. Uh, um, and there's so many wonderful little hidey hole places that you can do that up there. So, yeah, I used my stern anchor all the time. Um, so, yeah, I would say that I'd probably say that 40 percent of the time I was going bows to up there and the rest of the time i was in a um i was in a marina which um in which case you 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 typically will clip on to a buoy a stern buoy that they have in front of each berth so you clip on your your webbing reel um which is the same line that you use if you're attaching the anchor you just clip on that um and then you inch the boat forward and have someone the bowman jump off the front secure it from the bow so um that's what you normally do. And some of the marinas there, they have pontoons as well. But typically, it's a, it's a stern buoy. Sort of, it would freak me out being that close to rocks and trying to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, one of my guests really got, who was normally of a very calm demeanor, a sailor, um, got very nervous at the anticipation. And in fact, I took him off the bow and I put him on the wheel, on the, on the tiller because the bowman really has the most important job. And the thing is, is that the way the climate is over there, in these places, first of all, it, they're very, very sheltered. You choose, if, if, there, if, there are, if there is any sort of exposure, you know, you choose to be on the side of the bay where you're most protected from the wind. And the way things work over there, the climate, is about sort of four o'clock in the afternoon, the wind dies anyway, and it feels as though you're on a lake. Most of the time, the, the water is glassy. So, you know, if there's any chop whatsoever, you wouldn't be bowing. You wouldn't be doing that. Um, but, you know, if you come and sail with me sometime up there, Jack, you'll see for yourself. It sounds counterintuitive. It sounds terrifying. But the worst, <laughs> the worst thing I've ever had is a gentle bump in the morning one time when I was actually with you, France. That's in right. Yeah. Uh, two years ago. And we got a little gentle wake-up call. It wasn't a big bang or a crash or anything like that. It was a little nudge. And there was another little nudge about a minute later. We said, and let's we had get plenty going. Of time. Yeah. I mean, we, yeah, yeah, we didn't dally, but um, there was no danger of a rock suddenly poking through the bottom and uh, water gushing up through the uh, cabin dog. Yeah. Yeah. And what were the temperatures like during the uh, period? So, which were the what were the date ranges that you were there, and what were the temperatures like? And the, well, it was, and the water temperature as well. Well, that was one of the things that was less pleasant. Uh, it, it was June 17th to August 14th. 
and they had the hottest summer in the 300 years of record keeping. So it was Mediterranean, really, and it was actually too hot most of the time. The flip side of that, of course, is that the water temperatures were warm. Um, I don't really understand water temperatures too much. <laughs> so I, people say 65 degrees is not very warm. I don't know if it is or it isn't, but it was warm enough to swim everywhere I went. And a lot of the time, the moment you, we, we dropped anchor or we were at a... Um, uh, in a marina, you would, you know, after a passage, you'd be hot and sweaty, and then you'd find somewhere to swim. And very often, a lot of the places we went, there were lakes, so you wouldn't have to jump into the marina. You could, you know, you didn't have to be where the boats are. Um, so I spent a lot of time swimming, um, which was nice. And the only time it was really cold was was when we had a weather system come in in Finland um, when she was um, in a harbour and it was blowing close to 40 knots. So that was a little unpleasant. But it's but the idea of... I don't think I put my uh, my foul weather jacket or my foul weather... I don't want my foul weather pants on once in, in, in two months and my foul weather jacket once as well. So uh, it, was, it was like the Mediterranean. And I think the Mediterranean was like what? the Sahara this summer. That's my understanding. So, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, it, <laughs> you're talking about not putting your, your foulies on. I'm sort of like talking over here. It's like... Would you even bother to put clothes on? It was that hot. Right. So Neil, I'm looking at Google Earth like I always do when I when I when I do a podcast. I'm looking at uh, the you know the Gulf of Finland, and then you've got Saint Petersburg way up at the uh, at the head of that Gulf. Have right. you ever th- have you thought of uh, actually sailing into uh, into Russia? That'd be kind of cool, wouldn't it? Well, everything I read. Uh, has dissuaded me from doing that. Um, it would be cool to kind of sail all the way up to Helsinki and then maybe take a ferry across to St. Petersburg. I'd love to go there. But everything you read is that um, the bureaucracy is maddening, that it's expensive, they require they require all your paperwork in duplicate and triplicate and quadruplicate. Um, and it's just the sort of free and easy movement between Sweden and Finland. It, 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 there's no relation when it, when it comes to going across to, um, to Russia. Um, and then there's, I believe, there's some sort of exit fee. I, I, I don't want to give your readers false information. If they're interested in that, then they can certainly research themselves. But I looked at it quite exhaustively before I went over, and it set um, the hair on the back of my neck up, the prospect of going scared. I did want to go to, I want to go to St. Petersburg, just not on my own boat. I'll go yeah. on a ferry something. Okay, that, that makes sense. Now, have you thought of entering the boat in Finland instead of bringing it back to Stockholm, doing a one, one direction one year, or, or do you always like to bring it back to Stockholm or Sweden? Well, the, the thing is, is that the Finnish prices, it, in Sweden, I believe almost all of their maritime activities are subsidized by the government because they like to keep that. You know, they have a very strong heritage of seafaring life, and it's something that the, the Swedish government really encourages, which is why you can get a berth right on the Stockholm waterfront in a place called Vasahamnen for about $40 a night, whereas the cheapest hotel is about $300 a night. So everything is much cheaper than it seems like it should be, but that's certainly not the case in Finland. The prices to keep the boat up there are three times what they would be in, in Sweden. So for at least, as long as I've got it in that part of the world, I'm going to keep the boat in Sweden. Although, as I said, next year, I'm going to probably, I plan on spending about 90% of my time in Finland. So I'll cross early, I'll spend all my time in Finland, and then I'll bring the boat back to put her up. Um, and the place that I'm at now, or, uh, um, Greppen Marine in Oregon, looks fantastic. I, it, I would be hard-pressed to find a better place in terms of the service, the professionalism, and the price, I think. All right, spell Oregon. So I want to find out where it is while I'm looking at Google Earth. Oregon is O R E. G-R-U-N-D. Oh, yeah. You're just right up there, just right across from Holland then. Quite quite a ways up there then. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I'd come across um, initially, I was much further south. We came came across from below. um, There is a big sort of inlet that goes in about 10 miles into the town of Nortalia, and we were below that, so it was actually further to get to the Orland Islands. So from Oregon now, it would be quicker to make that little dash across to um, to Finland. But um, it's beautiful cruising ground up there. Very, very cute. Um, you know, lots of those typical 
red houses and fishing boats and um, very, very uh, unspoilt and pristine. The people are friendly. Everything is, it's just, it's gorgeous up there. So, but you are kind of spoilt for choice because that's the gorgeous thing about the Swedish coastline. And the, the interesting thing is that I've been, you know, waxing lyrical and praising it to my friends. But when you actually talk to people who sailed on both coasts, the East Coast and the West Coast, the West Coast is the best coast. That's what they say. The Swedes say that and all visiting sailors say that. So when I finally get across to the West Coast, which will probably be a couple of years from now, then um, I'll probably be able to spend a couple of happy seasons there as well. So how would you get to the West Coast? Is there a uh, canal that goes through the country? Yes, there is. It's called the Yotta Canal, um, it's spelled G-O-T-A, and you have to get a permit of some sort, which gives you a sort of a six-week window. But, um, yeah, they built that, I think, in the 19th century, and it was considered one of the great um, wonders of um, civic engineering at the time. Um, and it um, rises up over a crest in the land and comes down the other side. But, yeah, you can you can do it, and that's, um, that's a whole other experience. And I think people are interested in that. I think they can check out um, uh, the distant shores. Paul and Cheryl Shard, I believe, did an, did an episode on the Yotta Canal, and it's absolutely fascinating. So where do you leave from on the east side to get to the canal, or what, what city? You go west of Stockholm through, um, in a, um, I believe you go west of Stockholm through a lake group there, and then you come up north. Um, you kind of put me on the spot there. That's but, okay. Um, so so Stockholm pretty much is, you can go from Stockholm into the canal and then get across that way then. Yes, I believe you can, yes. Okay, yeah, I see. So there's some big lakes up there that you'd be sailing across. Orebro would probably be a town you'd go through. Yeah, I can see. Uh, yeah, that'd be a lot of fun. That'd be great. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're always invited. So <laughs> maybe in a couple of years when uh, when when your daughter has taken over stewardship of uh, Sea Dream. Yeah, that's right. When I could pass the uh, pass the baton <laughs> on Sea Dream on. So well, my my weather this summer, I think I t- said in my last podcast, was unbearably hot as well, and no wind. It was uh, one of the worst sailing summers I've ever had because, uh, first of all, it's it's blazing hot, never seemed to cool off, and secondly, there were, there was no wind in the entire month that I was there. There was, you know, I might have sailed ten minutes for the entire month. So mm-hmm. it was bad. you're talking about temperatures, which we <clears throat> did earlier, but um, like this this year, uh, certainly towards the later stages of the season, the water temperatures were so high uh, that there was two. Um, what were deemed to be, I mean, like one was sort of there and then the other one was definitely uh, called a medicane, meaning a Mediterranean hurricane. Um, so, you know, it, uh, it formed, the one that was quite distinct formed between um, the east Italian coast and Greece and then drifted over to Greece and it caused quite a lot of damage. There's a few boats sunk and, you know, a lot of flooding and and the rest of it, and uh, they certainly uh, that last one pretty much had an eye. Um, it uh, initially was forecast to be like uh, first stage hurricane level winds, but never got there. Um, but uh, it got close, and certainly hadn't seen that in the last few years. Um, but certainly this year there was uh, two of those formed, one very mild, and the other one fairly strong and that kept a lot of people um, in bays and tied up or away from walls or you know getting sustaining damage uh, like I said there's a few boats sunk as a result of it um, double anchoring you know like the anchoring technique that you talked about there's a few boats out there on there with two anchors uh, certainly in Syracuse waiting out the blow. And Syracuse is pretty good holding too as I recall. Yeah, yeah. I mean, luckily all those people were fine. I think they got about about forty five knots, um, but the the center of the system had that come across would have been sixty knots of wind, plus, uh, and they were forecasting eighty knots uh, in the initial forecast. Jack, I want to get an update from you. The last time we talked, you had sailed from Marina Ragusa down to. I don't know if we actually talked or if I just talked to you on the on Skype one time, but. I don't know if we did a podcast on this. You went down to Malta and then down to Tunisia and started your time clock over again. 
and then uh, headed over to uh, to to Greece. So, I don't, did we actually do a podcast on that, or were we just talking one day? No, I think I think we were just talking. Um, okay. But we we didn't go to Greece this year, though. Um, so okay. So you're right in that first section. Uh, we we left in early May, and we headed over to uh, Malta. Says that we get the boat lifted at Manol Island. Um, well, that's right. I talked to you when the boat was still on the heart at Manol Island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, Manol Island, um, and we were there in May. So we we hired an apartment so that we wouldn't keep the kids on the boat, uh, and they don't really like the kids on the boat in the yard anyway. Um, if you if you were at Manol Island on the jetty where you can still get some work done, but obviously none of the work that you have to do on the hard, uh, you can have the kids on the boat, you can live on the boat. If you're adults, you can live on the boat and you can work on your own boat whilst they're doing work for you as well. So it's a very good facility from that perspective. I mean, I can understand why they don't want kids there. Uh, you know, there's boat lifters running around, forklifts and trucks all the time. It's a, it's a pretty good it's a large facility with lots of heavy work being done uh, to some very big boats. Um, so yeah, so we we got the bottom uh, painted. We we also got the keel fed, so it got it was soda blasted um, and then filled and fed, so that it's it was nice and smooth. And I tell you, when when the boat went back in the water. It was so smooth it scared me. I was like, I was thinking, oh, I'm only idle forward. How's this thing going to stop? It's it's just tearing through the water. But uh, we were there for two weeks um, in Manol Island, and about uh, three weeks in total uh, in Malta, plus a little bit of cruising around Malta and anchoring with some fantastic places to to anchor. But the water was a little bit chilly still then, so um, the kids were sort of in the water, but not for very long. Quite a few jellyfish around, um, so a little bit of swimming, but very early in the season for swimming. Uh, but after after we left uh, Malta, it, it started to warm up fairly quickly. And um, yeah, Malta's definitely worth a visit. Um, the, you know, the British influence is there, and Obviously, the history of the Knights of St. John, and you know, it's just amazing, amazing place. And, and you could spend day after day after day and go to different places to, um, to find that the history is still there and, you know, in your face and you're walking through it constantly. Did you get over um, the Gozo? Yes. Yeah, okay. we did. Uh, in actual fact, that's where we checked in. Oh, okay. So, um, yeah, uh, and our favorite anchorage was, uh, uh, how do you call it, Fungus Rock? Or, yeah, I think it's, um, so it's spelt, uh, yeah, it's nicknamed Fungus Rock, but it's spelt D-W-E-J-R-A, Jura. And um, that anchorage was pretty cool because there's only one entrance in and it's like this hole in the rock, uh, very circular. Oh, and okay. I'm, I found it on Google Earth. That's way around to the uh, west side of Gozo. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And it sort of looks like there's two entrances, but there's really only one that you can take the sailboat through. And it's, you know, it's relatively narrow. Um, and then you're just totally surrounded by cliffs. Yeah, there's no beach. There's a couple of caves you can take the dinghy into. Um, and then the, the water uh, depth in the whole thing is about the same. It's, it's sort of, no matter where you went, it looked as though the depth was the same, which was quite amazing. It looked like it was flat. Hmm. Yeah, I can, so, see, I can see on Google Earth it is. I mean, even with... Uh, yeah, you can see it straight down cliffs. They must be very tall cliffs right around there as well. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's it was, it was hundreds of feet of cliffs all around you, vertical. Yep. Very impressive. Um, and, you know, there are plenty of places around Malta to, to find an anchorage and, and 
use a boat, but uh, I tell you what, it gets crowded very quickly. So there's not a lot around Malta, and Malta's not that big. And even when you consider the two islands together, when I speak about Malta, uh, on the weekends, everybody's out there in their boats, and <laughs> there's just like, there isn't, there isn't that much space. And like, there'll be people in Malta that just basically take their boat out of the marina and go around the other side and anchor in the harbour, and, you know, <laughs> that's their uh, boat usage. Hmm. But... Um, yeah, it's, it's very boaty, uh, very busy on the weekends, and I would imagine the peak season time, it would be extreme. So Malta was a very good place to be at. Um, we had the standing rigging inspected because um, we needed that for insurance purposes. The uh, For us, we're insured with, Oh, we were insured with Pantaneous in Australia, um, but they basically said anything that's beyond a 10 years life on a on standing rigging, uh, they would not insure. So everything else was covered on the boat, but you know, had had the rig failed due to the standing rigging failing, then none of that would have been covered for us. Um, we switched over to Topsail, and they had a situation where they would allow us to have the standing rigging inspected by a licensed uh, rigger. And as long as we had a report from him stating that the condition of the rig was okay or good to sail, then um, then they would accept that for Mediterranean waters only. Um, so, you know, the, the boat's 2002 and it's the original rig on it. Uh, we replaced all the running rigging um, the other year and we thought we'd have to replace the standing rigging this year, but we didn't have to. And the surveyor had a look at it, and he basically said that the boat hasn't been sailed very hard, and it's all pretty good. But he said, you know, rigging of this age really does need to get replaced. <laughs> so unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, but no need to be expected. We, we will be replacing it next year in Malta before the season starts. Because have you got a bid on what it's going to cost you? Yeah, it's not not too bad. It's going to be five to six thousand euro. Okay. So, and and that is because uh, you can actually do it in the marina without a crane by replacing you know one section at a time. So how much uh, how much are you paying for your 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 mooring this winter, Jack? I, I'm actually weren't you thinking of. Did you plan on spending another winter at Marina Ragusa, or were you thinking of heading back to the Caribbean? What, what's your plans? Well, we, it's it, it's crazy, you know, because we we first thought we'd spend like a year in in the Med, and then <laughs> we'd move on, uh, wanting to get to the Caribbean. Obviously, not not because we didn't want to spend time in the Med, but purely because having younger kids, we sort of expected to have uh, more you know, more children in the Caribbean um, and the sort of sailing and the sort of beach life that you have there is sort of more kid orientated. But I think even the kids, uh, we've all just been captivated by the history of the Mediterranean and just there is so much to see that it's, you know, it's gone from, well, we'll do one season to two seasons to three seasons. And, you know, it's, it's <laughs> next year... So the, so the intention is that next year we'll cross uh, 2019, 2020. So either, either late 2019 or early 2020, we will be heading over. So, you know, what I'm saying there is sort of November to January next year we'll be crossing. Um, and, there's, and we all know that there's going to be so much of the med that has been left behind and that all we've really done is just become familiar with the differences between the countries and... And some of the places, you know, some of the places we've seen a couple of times and you get to know, but uh, there is so much that we've missed. Um, so, you know, I think whether you do, you know, one season in the Med is just crazy, but uh, some people have got to do that because they're on a, on a time frame. But fortunately for us, we don't have an end date, so we can keep going. But the, um, the Med, as you know, You've been here for 
I don't know, 16 years now, is it, or, or longer? It's a long time. Yeah. 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 yeah but I'll admit, I, you know, last summer I was getting bored because uh, it's everywhere. I've been everywhere before, you know. It's like, eh, going back to the same old place. And so the, the what, what I always enjoy about sailing is the discovery. And when the discovery's sort of gone or when you've been back three or four times, it's not, not as much fun. At least it's not for me. So. It sounds like you need to start moving north. Yeah, I'm. You know, I'm. I'm well, I'm going to go up to the very northern end of the Adriatic next summer, up to Venice, and I'm going to winter in Italy. I found a marina up there that's much less expensive than Dubrovnik. And by the way, I'm paying about uh, three thousand five hundred euros for my uh, my year of, of wintering in Dubrovnik. So, you know, thousand dollars a year sounds pretty damn attractive, Neil. <laughs> yeah, that's that's. <laughs> quite expensive isn't it it is it's very expensive and all of croatia as you know is expensive yeah you, you know if i could just touch on that point you raised there jack i mean this is the beauty of of not having a schedule that you don't feel forced to leave um and you don't succumb to that notion that the, the grass is always greener on the other side you know i when i originally got the boat i figured that i would be a just where I am for a couple of seasons only just because I wanted to keep moving. But the more that you see, the more that you want to see. And also there's a notion also, which is strange of, of actually making friends and feeling immersed in the culture rather than, you know, doing a deep dive in other words, rather than just doing a drive by. And I'll, I'll give an example of that. When I was there in 2016, we were in this little place called Dalaro which I believe you came with me, Franz, to there as well. And it's, um, it's a place about a five-hour sail from Stockholm, but it's only about an hour's drive. So it's a place where a lot of rich Stockholmers have summer homes. And we became friends through an introduction at a restaurant to a couple there called Torbjorn and Anne. And he's from Stockholm, but she's actually from Southern California. And they have a house in Laguna Beach, and they spend... I think about seven months of the year in Laguna Beach and about the other five months in, in Sweden. Um, and um, I got there um, this year really looking forward to seeing them because they'd sailed with me here in Southern California and we'd spent some time with them two years ago, as I said. And when we got to Dalaro, I was with uh, my friend, the doctor, who owns a, I'll just refer to him as the doctor. He owns a 55-foot Beneteau, which I race on. Um, and I did the Newport and Sonata race last year on his boat. Terrific guy, great sailor. And we pulled into Dalaro, and he pulled out his drone, his new $1,000 drone. And on his first flight, he dropped it in the water. And, he, and he's normally very even-tempered, but he was effing and blinding. He was not happy at all about that. And I said, well, let's go to this restaurant, this lovely little restaurant here that I was at two years ago. I said, I'll buy you a, a drink, and we'll figure out what we're going to do for dinner. Um, so we wanted to go for dinner, but they, they were completely full. And the guy who owns the place has a sort of a a um, Basil Fawlty from Fawlty Towers uh, sort of personality to him. And he seemed almost gleeful as he was telling me that they couldn't accommodate us for dinner. And then five minutes later, I got a text from my friend um, Torbjorn, who just lived up the hill, and he was coming down for dinner. And he had a dinner reservation. As soon as we got there, he had a word with the owner. And they said, oh, no, we'll just change the table from two to four, to, from two people to four people. And he said, you see, uh, the, the, you know, the Basil Fawlty owner sort of rubbed his hands together and see, well, he said, it's all who you know, not just in California, but in Sweden, too. And we went back there two other times during the course of the summer. Once when his daughter, Torbjorn and Anne, have a 21-year-old daughter called Ju Julia, who is a singer-songwriter and a quite a talented one at that. And she's trying to make a career for herself, I believe, in London. But she came back to do a concert um, in the little village of Dalaro. And before the concert, it seemed like everyone in the village went to Anne and Torbjorn's house for cocktails and appetizers and pink champagne. And I saw people who I'd last seen two years ago. And then after a couple of, couple of hours, my children were there and they were talking with everyone. And then it seemed like the whole village then decamped. We walked down the road to the little bakery and in the parking lot, Julia gave her concert. The sun was shining. The streets were full of these good-looking, civilized, trilingual Swedes. And I just thought to myself, it, it, it was a wonderful, wonderful, heartwarming experience to feel that you've really made that kind of deep dive that you could then become almost like a part of the community temporarily. 
And I thought to myself, it would be very hard to leave Sweden just because of those sort of experiences, because they are they're quite literally priceless. You can't put a price on the feeling that they give you and the sense that you're living at such an elevated level. So that's a sort of a, a little bit of a long winded way of saying, you know, you're absolutely right, Jack. But that's the nice thing that you don't have. To yeah, do. well, you you. you you do get that, and um, it, and it's sometimes very, like you said, very hard to leave that. But um, and and sometimes my kids say, you know, like it's really going to be hard leaving Marina de Ragusa. And you know, last year we had a bunch of friends here that they made, and um, we caught up with them again during the trip. But you know, the, as I say to them, the reason you found this place and the reason you met these people is because you left the last place. Right. And had had you not made that journey. You would never have found them, and you know you don't have to lose touch forever. There's modern communication; it's very easy to stay in touch. Um, but yeah, it's it's part of the sailing life is the ability to continue exploring. I mean, in some cases you think, well, you know, you're out there in the world, you're all by yourself without your friends. But what you end up doing is, sure, you miss your original friends, but you end up making so many more friends mm-hmm. whilst you're cruising around. Um, and just one thing I remember, you asked me that question as to what is it going to cost at Marina de Ragusa. So uh, we're 13.95 metres, so that's 46 feet, and it's costing us 1,900 for the berth and 175 for water electricity for the seven months. So that's quite reasonable. Yeah. That yes. Is, yeah, yeah. That and you've got a community there too. I mean, you've you've really created a community there. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, the kid kids are back in force. We don't have as many as we did last time as yet, but there's there's still some boats coming. Um, and of course, you remember um, Paul from mm-hmm. Seven on the Sea and Mrs. Chippy. Yeah. Uh, poor poor bugger got struck by lightning twice this season. Oh no. <laughs> so yeah. So he's had it. He's he was struck by lightning in Greece, and then again uh, in Spain, uh, yeah. because he's getting ready to cross. Um, but we caught up with those guys in Corsica, so that was pretty good. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's wonderful being here. So after um, after Malta, um, we left to go to Tunisia, like you said, to start the clock over again for making sure that we don't spend more than 18 months in the Mediterranean. Um, otherwise, you know, if you're caught, you're, you're up for the bat uh, on the boat at whatever price they they determine is the correct price. Hey, Jack, let me ask you um, a question about that because, you know, one of the things I've had people ask me on is, have you ever, do you, have you ever found somebody that's been caught on the vat? Have you heard stories about that? <laughs> I have not heard stories of them being caught, but I've watched them being investigated ah, this season. Okay. That's so um, there's been three boats that all come from Marina de Ragusa. They're out sailing around in Italy. Um, so I don't know about Greece this season. I, I will be speaking to some people coming back from Greece soon. But... Um, did we lose Neil, did we? No, I'm still here. All oh, right, okay. So you still there, Franz? Yep, I'm still here, yep. Oh, good. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, so um, there's been the uh, Guardia Financia uh, in Italy, um, and there's been three boats, uh, one registered to an American, one registered UK, and one registered Italian. And all three have had Guardia Financia on board, uh, going through the paperwork, and of course, um, you know, in our case, we're trying to prove that we don't spend more than eighteen months in the med or in, you in know, Europe. in yeah. uh, in Europe. And for for people that have got boats that are registered in Europe, they sort of have to prove that they haven't spent two years out of Europe. Hmm. Because, you know, in fact, then they'd be back in Europe again and might have to uh, re-import the boat and pay tax again. So, yeah, so I have seen it. I uh, didn't see it before, but I definitely saw it this year. All right. We didn't mean to interrupt you, but some from Malta, you headed to Sicily? or uh, uh, Tunisia. 
Tunisia. Okay, oh, that's right, Tunisia. Yeah. And then from Tunisia, where did you head off to? Uh, then we headed off to Sardinia, okay. and then Corsica, and then back to the mainland of, of Italy on the west coast. But um, so you just get back to Tunisia. We we turned up there, um, and we didn't, you know, we didn't know how we'd feel about it uh, in the sense that uh, being a Muslim country and it was Ramadan, as to how much freedom we would have in, you know, exploring the place and just sort of being there as to how much we'd have to stay low key and and so on. Um, but we found the Tunisian people were, you know, excellent. They were very friendly, but they were all walking around pretty sad and sorry for themselves towards the later stages of the afternoon when they haven't been eating anything or, or drinking anything for the whole day. Um, that, that part of it made it a bit different. You know, you, it's not like you can sort of sit on the back of the boat in the marina having your lunch your cocktail, and drink, yeah. drinking a beer. <laughs> <laughs> That's when, you, that's when you have to turn the boat around and put it, put it in bow first. That way they can't. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, so that part of it was pretty strange. Um, and yeah, there's also the uh, the three o'clock in the morning cannon going off, so that would wake everybody up so they could get out of bed and eat before the sunrise. Oh <laughs> and yeah. That was always that was a bit weird. Um, you know, we didn't feel unsafe, didn't feel threatened, but we we definitely felt weird. You know, you go down the beach and, you know, there isn't a beach full of guys and women all in swim gear. It's sort of a beach full of guys. The women aren't to be seen. And, you know, so if you want to go, it's hot, and if you want to go for a swim, uh, you know, often kids sort of feel a bit weird, so we didn't do any of that. Uh, and then at the sunset, Quite often, the uh, the police would come out and they'd be just be standing there with um, assault rifles uh, for just no reason, and we're sort of thinking, well, what's that about? Because like, it's not like they were there during the day, and it would seem that they felt that they were giving the Westerners some extra form of feel-good security by being around at that point in time, because I, some correlation with uh, with the timing and potential events that could happen. So that also felt a bit weird. Um, the um, the amount of rubbish around in the water was was pretty bad as well. Um, but yeah, so people were great, friendly, and you could certainly eat very cheaply. Uh, you can go down to a local market and you can feed a family of five for <clears throat> I don't know less than twenty euro for for a couple of days. I think you know vegetables and bread and were so cheap. And there'd be there'd be half five hundred kilo or five hundred pound tuners being wheeled in, um, whole cows being prepared in the markets and all sorts of things. So it was it was an eye opening experience, very different to the rest of the med. That's for sure. All right, I'm uh, going to uh, I'm going to just uh, stop the recorder right now. We're going to come back in, and we're going to continue the conversation from Malta. We've been going on about 55 minutes. Life is short. In the end, all that really matters is the memories you make. So make a few. Go sailing. 